Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. As we continue in our Lucan series, Luke chapter 2, for a sermon entitled, Unlikely. Have you ever been in charge of planning a really, really big event? Like a wedding or a class reunion or a grand opening? I was in charge of planning the weddings of my two oldest daughters, Ryan and Jordan, and tried to make them as memorable as possible. And well, there was wedding cake in six different flavors and the planning and preparation is literally spread over a year's time, managing a myriad of details and thus many stressful moments. Well, there's contracts and photographers and videographers and soloists and an orchestra and a caterer and a band and venue and hotels and cake decorators and ushers and florists and groomsmen and bridesmaids and registry books and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you've been there, you know how much stress is involved in planning a really, really big event. But what could be bigger than planning for the arrival of the Son of God. Could any of us imagine being in charge of the details for a cosmic event like the coming of the Christ? How would we have planned for the birth of the Son of God, the Savior, the Christ, our Lord? Perhaps we would have planned for the holy child to be born in the city of Jerusalem, maybe within the shadow of the temple itself. Certainly we would have selected a king and a queen or at least priestly parents, as was the case with John the Baptist, for the long-awaited holy child. Trumpets would have blared and royal decrees declared the long-awaited arrival of the Prince of Peace. If we were in charge, God, however, wrote the script in the most unlikely way. Common characters, carpenters and shepherds, star in the story of the birth of the Messiah. The authenticity of Luke's account is certain because if we were writing it, it would be far-fetched and not so simple, so humble as it is made and written by Luke. John the baptizer, his birth is summarized in chapter 1 in simply two verses, chapter 57 and 58, but Luke fully develops a record of the birth of Jesus. And in the midst of poverty, and in the midst of the powerless, Luke takes his readers on a most unexpected journey as he leads them to a little humble city called Bethlehem and not to Jerusalem for this most unusual Event. Well, there's two sections here. Traveling up to Bethlehem, verses 1 through 7. Look at that portion with me. Traveling up to Bethlehem. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, 
in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. You see, the Roman Empire is counting heads so that they can count the coins. They're collecting the taxes. Oppressed, the Jews loathe being taxed by the occupational government, Rome. These opening verses, Luke reminds us that God's people were political prisoners in their own country. The Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus is counting those heads so he can collect those taxes. Now, Gaius Octavius, Caesar Augustus, was adopted by his great uncle, Julius Caesar, who made Octavius both his adopted son and his heir. Augustus is a title more than it is a name. It carries a, a meaning like majestic, and it was given to him by the Senate in 27 B.C. Well, the, the census itself was an unwelcome reminder that Israel was a conquered people living under the hegemony of Roman rule. He makes reference to the census four times, verse one and two and three and five. He wants us to know that this is an intrusion into the lives of God's people to have to travel and sign up for the taxes. It's an imperial degree enforced by pagan peoples upon God's people. And Caesar's trying to collect the taxes. Well, the registering was required. Joseph and the expecting mother, Mary, traveled to Bethlehem where Jesus will be born. We cannot help but know that while Luke tells us that Jesus' reign will have no end, he's already told us that Augustus' reign will end, and it does end in A.D. 14. Being a descendant of David, Joseph has to travel to the city of David. Now, he begins in such a way, verse 4, is the first time you read it, they are going up. Now in Scripture, when you go up, you're going to Jerusalem. They're going up, and next they're going to the city of David. The city of David and Samuel and 2 Kings is Jerusalem. They're going up, that means Jerusalem. To the city of David, that means Jerusalem. But it's, it's a head fake. No, they went up to the city of David. In this case, the city of David's birth, the city, he tells us, the humble city of Bethlehem. Like David, Jesus shares a humble beginning with David. Had not the prophet Micah said long before, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. Now, usually the women didn't have to go and register, but Mary decides to go. We're not told exactly why Mary decided to go. Maybe it was to be left behind from Joseph to whom she was engaged. We call the wagging of the caustic tongues back in Nazareth. We learn in, in John's Gospel, chapter 8, that the village people had their own explanation for the birth of Jesus, and it did not include Mary's virginity. You know, maybe she knew the days were drawing nigh, like women sometimes know, and she didn't want to risk not being close to Joseph 
and the baby is born. Luke likens the birth of God to that of an ordinary peasant baby boy born in the backwater of the Roman Empire. When he's born, he is wrapped in cloths, swaddled like babies like to be swaddled for comfort. But when I read about that wrapping in cloths, my mind fast forward to Luke 23, 53, where Jesus' body is taken down from the cross and he is wrapped in the cloths. Luke masterfully foreshadowing that this baby snuggled in the claws, what's available wrapped tightly, will in the end of the story be wrapped again and placed into a borrowed tomb. There's no room for them in the guest room. Now, I don't want to shatter the way you've imaged Christmas, but this is really the way that I think that it is. The average peasant home basically had two rooms and a place for animals. The animals were down lower and there was a built up floor, two rooms. There was a room where the main family cooked and they slept and then there was a cataluma in the Greek. There was a guest room. And the word used here for in is the guest room. It went from house to house, maybe of relatives and there was no cataluma. There was no guest room available. So under the same roof of the house, think of our garage today, they park their animals under the same roof like we park our cars under the same roof. Well, Mary and Joseph couldn't find the Cataluma. It was full, so they had to go out to where the animals would normally stay. Animals that were probably out to pasture this time of year. There's another word for improper, and in fact, Luke uses it in the story of the Good Samaritan. And every other time, he uses this word cataluma. It means the guest room of an average peasant home. Then there's that word manger, feeding trough. The wood of that feeding trough reminds the reader of the wood that would be upon his back at his crucifixion. The next section is 8 through 20, where we declare the good news. Luke has already given us hints that shepherds will be the next supporting cast members coming across his narrative stage. He continually mentions David over and over again and then Mary in her song spoke about the lowly being lifted up as she sang. Now we might romanticize about the occupation of a shepherd today but really it was like a gypsy. They were ceremoniously unclean They couldn't testify in the court of law. They were thought to be gypsies traveling about with sticky fingers. Nobody ever trusted really a shepherd in that day. Ironically, Luke's selection of lowly characters such as shepherds foreshadows the fact that Jesus himself came for the outcasts and the sinners and not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. They're out in their fields During the months of March through November, though, there's nothing in the text that tells us the month of the day of Jesus' birth. Luke could hardly have chosen a greater contrast when he follows up the lowly shepherds with an angel of the Lord. Now, this is the third time in the Lucan narrative we've had a visit from an angel. First, Gabriel comes to Zacharias and says, your wife, Elizabeth, though she's barren, will, will have a child. And then... Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her she's chosen. She'll have a child. And though this angel is not named, probably not named because 
The message is more important than the messenger. The message is that the Christ has been born. The glory of the Lord shone round about, it says in the text. The glory of the Lord was associated with the tabernacle and then it was associated with the temple and now it's associated with shepherds out in the fields by night. The angel makes a proclamation of bringing good news and all of a sudden the angel is joined with the host and all people are included. Notice what the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy. The word for good news is euangelion. It's the word gospel we use. It was to declare the birth of an heir of a Roman emperor or when a new emperor ascended to the throne. And in Isaiah, it's when God himself arrives and brings peace and justice to the people. Man, we're bringing the good news, the angel says. We bring you good news of great joy. You don't have to wait for today it has been fulfilled The word today connects the Old Testament promises of God from yesterday to the immediacy of today. Today, it has been fulfilled in your hearing. I've always enjoyed the story about the five-year-old boy who was playing the angel of proclamation, this angel. They practice and practice and practice and he, he finally got it down pat. When they were to shine the spotlight right on this little kid, he was supposed to say, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people everywhere. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. He had it memorized, but it's different when you're up here than when you're sitting out there. That light got in his eyes. He couldn't think of his lines to save his little soul. And so he just put it in his own words and he said to that Christmas congregation, boy, have I got some good news for you. (laughs) Euangelion, good news. Boy, have I got some good news for you. He paused, he panicked and he paraphrased, but he proclaimed in his own words, the Christ is here. Notice how he's described the Savior. That's a word reserved for God himself. In fact, Luke has already used this word for God himself. And then he's the Christos. He's the Christ. He is anointed one, the Holy One of Israel. He's the Savior. He's the Christ. He's the Kyrios. He's the Lord himself. Remember Mary in her song? She declared, my soul exalts the Lord My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Mary has called God himself the Savior and the Lord. And now this baby is both the Savior and he's the Lord, which means he's the Christos. He's the Christ. The angels disappear as quickly as they have come. And they go and find all that has been said of the Christ child. Look at verse 15. It came when the angels had gone away from them into heaven. The shepherds began saying to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in a manger. I have tried to imagine that moment a thousand times. Walking into the little Cataluma is not available out in the garage. 
There they find a teenage bride, a carpenter husband, scrap claws for the baby, a feeding trough for the bed. And somehow they know that things will never be the same again. And when they had seen this, verse 17, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Our students studied this week in the awe of the presence of God. What do you do? You make him known. They had seen the awe of God in the Christ child, the Lord himself, the Savior in the form of a Bethlehem baby. They made known the Christ child. And all who heard it wondered the things which are told the shepherds. And Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying God and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as been told them. The shepherds discover the Christ child just as the angels have announced. And they go and they make it known. And Mary is kind of like Luke's parable of the souls or the sower. She's the fertile soul. She takes the gospel and she puts it in her heart and she ponders and she bears the first believer to bear much fruit for the gospel because Mary is faithful soul. Luke begins his orderly account with the most unexpected story. God's angel has finally proclaimed the good news that the Savior, the Christ, has arrived. And this Savior is not just for Israel, but for all people everywhere. And the first ones to hear are lowly shepherds that everyone else ignores. God leads a poor carpenter as expecting teenage wife to the humble city for the birth of the Son of God. If we were writing the script, we would have never written it this way. They wrap him in the scrap claws, they put him in the feeding trough, and the only people that show up for the birth of the cosmic Christ, the Son of God, are some shepherds who happen to be on the hillside when the angels showed up. With the exception of the arrival of the shepherds, the birth of the Christ is totally ignored on the night of his birth. You see, Luke picks an unlikely place, not Jerusalem, no, but Bethlehem, a little hamlet. God picks an unlikely time. God has been silent for centuries, and now God speaks as the word becomes flesh. And God picks the most unlikely parents, a carpenter and a teenage girl, a virgin. And God picks the most unlikely preachers, a bunch of shepherds that no one trusted to go and see and find and declare the good news. And God chooses you too. Maybe you're here this morning, you say, what can I do? I'm a seventh grade boy or I'm a ninth grade girl. How can God use me? God always uses the unexpected and the unlikely. 
And the preaching of this announcement of the birth of the Christ demands a response. The shepherds gave a response. They made haste. They hurried. They found, they found the father and the mother and they found the baby and they made known the wonderment of God that had been announced to him that, them that evening. Mary made a response. She pondered in her heart what it meant to bear the Son of God. As Luke unfolds the story, we know how the shepherds responded. They went in obedience and they worshiped. As he tells us the story, we know how Mary responded. She put them in her heart and she pondered what it meant for her to be chosen as the one to bear the Son of God. Luke has one question left on the table. How will you respond? How will you respond? Euangelion. Boy, have I got some good news for you. The Savior, the Christ, the Lord is now here. And we must respond. Let us pray. Oh God, perhaps there's a student this morning who needs to make a response to what she has experienced or he has experienced this weekend. Maybe there are others this morning who need to come and be a part of this church, this congregation. Maybe there's someone who needs to come and declare, I hear the story with new ears and I see with new eyes and I must make a response. However you would call us, whether it's a student this morning or someone here in our congregation, if you would call us to respond, may we be open to come to your altar. In Christ's name we pray, amen.